Genesis chapter 12. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn there uh, with me. Genesis chapter 12. As you turn, I want to consider with you this basic question. What is it that moves men and women to make life-altering decisions? We make decisions all the time. Many of them we don't even really think about as decisions, but we're always doing that in our life. But there are those times that we face big decisions. And the big decisions in life that we face beg for us to have some kind of solid way to get to the right decision. When I was uh, a younger man, I had a situation that arose with my brother. Now, my brother and I are best of friends. He was my hero for many years growing up and still holds something of that position with me. And um, we grew up in a home where our father was a pastor, and neither one of us wanted to be a pastor. As teenagers and young men, both of us worked awfully hard to prove that we didn't want to be pastors at that age. And yet at some point in there, God definitively broke into my reality, and I knew that I was being called into the ministry. Within a week of that, our common best friend, the common between my brother and I, best friend also was called to the ministry. And my brother's discussion with us later, as we reflected back on those days, centered around the struggle that he had growing out of that. If I come from a family where the father is a pastor and my brother is going to be a minister and my best friend is going to be a minister, maybe that means I should be a minister. Now, my brother, fortunately, has enough wisdom not to act on the thought there and rather look for the calling that needed to be there. Just so that you know, there's one sane person in our family. My brother's not a minister these days. Well, that's not exactly true. He ministers where he is, but he's a manager, a safety manager for a large gas processing company in Oklahoma. But for many years, he struggled with that. Something's wrong with me because I didn't get called into that ministry. I want you to take that scenario and put it right down into your own lap. Why are you what you are? For those of you who are teenagers and you're seeking to become something, what chooses for you? That path of life. How do you get to the point where you make those kind of decisions? Now, all of that pushes us back into this central truth that I've been trying to lay out for us as we move forward. That is that we need God's input on a very practical level for our everyday life. I'm going to say that again because I really need to... No, too bad. You missed the amen opportunity. Let me just keep on trucking and maybe you'll find another opportunity in there. We need to hear from God. The problem with that, I think, is that we don't always stop long enough to hear the voice of God. We're in this ongoing study of a guy named Abram. He will eventually have his name changed to Abraham. But in the short haul, this guy named Abram who started over in Mesopotamia, modern-day Iraq, and he finds himself where we left off last week in modern-day Israel in the land of the Canaanites, according to Genesis chapter 12. This guy teaches us something about what life with God looks like. It's the life of faith, the life 
that in Hebrews chapter 11 we'll refer back to and say that's a noteworthy life of what it means to be one who follows God in his life. We learn a lot from this guy. Let's go to the passage today. Genesis chapter 12. I'm not going to go all the way back and read from verse 1. We find ourselves actually today in verse 8, but I'll read verses 7 and 8. Here's what it says. Then the Lord appeared to Abram. Let me set the context. He's in Shechem. He's made the journey from Haran, from modern-day Iraq into modern-day Israel. In Shechem, it says, verse 7, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So Abram built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Verse 8 is our text for the day. And from there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. As we come into this, here's a big idea truth I want you to hang on to. If you're going to be a follower of Jesus Christ, you better keep your bags packed. I'm intrigued with the flow of the narrative here, the way this story plays out for us. The reason I'm intrigued by it is not so much that God appears to him and speaks to him and all of those kind of things. What really gets me here is that Abram's experience is so foreign to the way most of us operate our lives. The the religious part of us and the way churches tend to operate is very different than what we find going on here in verses 7 and 8. Particularly what I mean by that is we have a tendency... That when God shows up somewhere, we build a shrine. Abram moves forward. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But when God shows up, we have the tendency to sit down and to build a shrine there and make some notable place out of it. I know that's true, partly by experience in my own life and churches that I've been in and churches that I've served. Churches that find a way to get stuck in the past rather than live in the present. But that comes most clear to me in some of the travels that I've been able to take through the years. In 2009, I guess it was, I had the opportunity to go to modern-day Turkey. It was a tour that was put on by this Christian group, or at least they claimed to be Christian. I rode on a bus with them for 10 days. I'm not sure how Christian they were, really. But... uh <laughs> We went all through the western and central part of modern-day Turkey, looking at Christian sites in this... Turkey claims to be a non-religious government, but it is very solidly Muslim in the countryside. Let's just say it that way. But sprinkled around that area are these Christian sites... I learned a lot on this trip, not so much on the archaeology end of things and just the tourist end of things. I learned a lot on how Christian people think and operate on that trip. The reason we went to Turkey is because that is the site of the seven churches of Revelation. If you go read the first handful of chapters in the book of Revelation, you'll find there that the writer records these letters that are sent to these various churches. All seven of those were in the, hear this carefully now, were in what was the geographical center of the Christian movement in those days. It had moved out of Jerusalem into what is modern-day Turkey, and those noteworthy churches were the ones that this set of letters goes to. 
And those are real churches, and they still have ruins there, although some of them you have to look awfully hard to find them. But here's what I learned from that. That place that was the center of the Christian world in those days now is nothing but ruins. That is the message of so many churches. We used to be vibrant. We used to have something to say in society, but now you can't find us if you look for us. We tend to build shrines when God shows up. But God is always on the move. The same is true in Israel. We hope someday that a bunch of us can get together from here in southeast Texas and go to Israel and take one of those tours. And if and when we ever get to do that, one of the things that you're going to find when you get over there is you'll go to these holy spots... I have trouble with the term in the first place. But we go to these locations and they've built these churches there. They're shrines. They're places where God showed up. Where the hill, the mountainside there, of where the Beatitudes were given. There's a church there. You go to where some people say the nativity occurred in Bethlehem and there's a church there. And it's like that all over the land of Israel. You go places where God somewhere, sometime did something and somebody threw up a church. It's in the middle of an area that has very little to do. Talking about the day-to-day life. There's very little to do with Christianity other than the tourism that it brings. But we built a shrine. Many Christians have a tendency to camp out where God has shown up. And that takes me back here to Abram. I'm mixing terminology. It's not right to call him a Christian. He's before Christ came, but he certainly is the father of the faith and one of those faithful ones who would become the children of Israel. And in him, here's the question that I that I find in this passage. When God so wondrously showed up in his life at Shechem, why did he move on? You remember that deal at Shechem? In verse 1, I made this point last week. In verse 1, it says simply that God spoke to him and said, Hey, get up and get out of here. Let's go somewhere else. But in verse 7, when he gets to that land and he gets to Shechem, that high place, that ridge, where probably those locals were uh, practicing their pagan religion. It was the tree of the teacher where oracles were given to them from their gods, so to speak. Abram goes to that place. And verse 7 says, God appeared to him. He showed up. And what did Abram do? He built a shrine. (laughs) Abram is like us after all. But where he's not like us, where the thing that seems to just jump off the page to me is when God says to him in verse 7, to your offering I'm going to give all of this land, the next thing we know is Abram is up and moving on. So unlike us. Why is it that as Christian people we find ourselves as individuals but then on top of that our churches that are mired in the past of what God did some time ago? This is where I like to get on one of my soapboxes. We don't have one so I'll just use this pulpit here. Why is it That in our day, Christianity is so bent on merchandising Christianity. If, let me put it this way. If Abram 
had been a modern-day evangelical, he would have been contacted by Lifeway and asked to write a Bible study on how to build an altar to God in the middle of a pagan environment. It would have gone to video. It would have been promoted all over their stores, all over this part. We would find it in Preaching Magazine. We would find it in Christianity Today. We would have all of this emphasis on man. Look at what God did with you. We need to duplicate that across the spectrum of the Christian world. That's the merchandising of Christianity. One of the reasons that I'm reluctant to ever get involved in this thing called the National Day of Prayer is because it is so merchandised. I get so much stuff. Some of you didn't know there was such a thing as a National Day of Prayer. I get so much stuff that comes across my desk starting in roughly January or February for a May event. And for just $19.95, you can have the worker's packet on how to do a National Day of Prayer event in your church. Hello. If you have... if. If you watch the news one night a week, it ought to drive you to your knees to pray for this country. Every day is National Day of Prayer if you know Christ. Right? But you see, we've bought into these things that somewhere somebody had a good idea and so we set it up and we do that and then we merchandise that. And if you're really part of the cool churches, you'll go do the stuff that these other guys over here are doing because after all, they did it and look at all the people that showed up. Man, here's a good truth for us. I've already said that part that we liked and we have that tendency to camp out where God has shown up. But the truth that comes with that is the one that says salvation history is always on the move. God is at work. He's moving history towards its appointed end. And though we prefer to camp out most of the time, And we put our campsites in places where we know God showed up and we might sit there for 30 years reliving how great it was when God was here with us. God is on the move. We see that in salvation history. We see it from this guy Abram. Through church history, let me just pick up on what Aaron was saying when he started this morning. Jesus walks down the coastline of the the Sea of Galilee, and here's these fishermen out there. And Jesus says to them, I showed up, build a shrine. Is that what he said? It's not what he said. He said, follow me, and I'll do this for you. I'll make of you this reality. Jesus didn't just stop right there. His whole enterprise wasn't intended to be lived on the shore next to the boats. And so those disciples follow him and he moves them. And those same disciples, when it's all said and done and Jesus has been crucified, resurrected, and ascended back to heaven, those same disciples are told, go to a room and wait there until I show up in a different way. And then, lo and behold, what happens? The Holy Spirit shows up. And God moves history just a little bit further down the line. And that church there in Jerusalem, before it's all said and done, God shows up again with a guy named Simon Peter. And he says, hey, you know, this is for other people too. And so he goes down and meets a guy named Cornelius. And and out of that, the church begins to spread just a little bit. And then not too many years after that, a guy named Saul meets Jesus on the road. 
and his whole life gets turned upside down. He didn't stop there and build a shrine. What did he do? He went and he began and he became the one who ultimately took the gospel deep into the Roman Empire. And that would spread up into Gaul, modern day France and Great Britain. And ultimately people there would take that same gospel message and get on boats and go to India and get on boats and go to the new land called America. And a group of people in that new land called America on the frontier in what is now South Carolina and Kentucky took that same gospel message and spread it westward until it hit the Pacific Ocean. God is on the move in history. It's okay to enjoy his presence and even to say God was here and we knew it. But the moment that you sit down and build camp right there and refuse to move again, you have stepped right out from under what God is doing. Big truth. You could totally miss God. If you're content to stay where you are. You can totally miss God if you're content to stay where you are. This affects churches. Certainly it affects us as individuals. Maybe it's a good time for me to ask you, how is it with you and God? How long has it been since you heard his voice and responded to his call in your life? But I think I'd rather talk about churches for a moment. You ever know of a church that their conversation always seems to gravitate back to the good old days? It doesn't matter how long ago the good old days were. Three days, three weeks, three years, 30 years. Those are the churches that somehow decided we're just comfortable right here where we are. But you just need to understand, I'm not talking about physically moving a church location that's not on the radar. I'm not suggesting that, not ever going to suggest that. I'm talking about the mindset of the church. I'm talking about the spiritual depth of the church that says, well, you know what? God was so real when my Aunt Susie was here that I think we should just try to get back to Aunt Susie's church days. The tragedy is that most churches don't really think that. It's not such a conscious decision that they make. It's just that we just kind of settle into it. It's so good here. Why would we go anywhere else? Let's just enjoy here where we are until finally the whole world passes you by and you don't know what happened. And suddenly there's not any little kids running around the church anymore. It's just the white hairs or the no hairs that are left. Churches die. Because somewhere, yesterday's word from God is sufficient for the day. I'm, I'm intrigued with Abram here. God shows up in a real way to him. And he moves on. We have to know how to determine when it's time to stay put and when it's time to move on. Don't let that rattle you too much. God doesn't play games. It's not like God sits back and says, okay, you know, uh, let's play 20 questions. And if you ask the right 20 questions, I'll get you to the answer of what you do. That's not how God operates. He wants us to know what he wants us to do. 
The deal is, we have to be willing to hear it. Here's how I know that's a true statement, that he wants us to know what he wants us to do. Go back in Scripture. Actually, we have to go forward in Scripture from here. The next book in Scripture is called the book of Exodus. And it gives us, among other things, the account of the children of Israel as they leave Egypt to go to the promised land. I made this distinction in the first service. Let me make sure that our church gets it all together here. What do we call that? We call the children of Israel blank in the wilderness. What's in the blank? Wandering. You know what? That's really not a great way to say that. If you know the scripture. Because scripture tells us, doesn't it? That at some point early in the process, God shows up for the children of Israel. And they know when to move and when to stay. By what? At night, there's a pillar of fire. In the daytime, there's this cloud. And Scripture tells us that when it was time for them to move, that fire or that cloud would pick up and physically relocate. And the children of Israel would go, whoop, well, it's time to go. And so here they go following that. That's not wandering. That's being led, Right? We need to hear that for what it is. God is concerned enough about the direction that we go in as a church and as a people that if we will just let him, he will communicate to us when it's time to go and when it's time to camp out. But churches are intent on just hanging out someplace that God showed up. Okay, some of my favorite theologians of all time is the... I hate to say this. No, I don't. It's the Christian rock group, Petra. Okay, that's a play on words. Um, Petra had a song based on the stuff I just talked about. Here's the lyrics to it. We're content to pitch our tent when the glory of God is evident. Seldom do we know the glory came and went. What a great truth for the church that is intent on camping out where God showed up a hundred years ago. In case that one's not enough of an example for you, go to the New Testament. Here's these three inner circle disciples with Jesus. Jesus, in the book of Mark, by the way, this happens at the exact center point of the gospel. Everything after this event in the life of Jesus moves definitively to the cross. It's called Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. You remember the story where Jesus goes up and these three disciples are with him and two other people show up. Anybody remember who they were? The first service missed this, so you get one up on them if you get this right. Moses and the other one. Okay, so Moses and this other guy show up up there and Jesus, it says, transfigures before them. Now, here's where Simon Peter proves that he's a Baptist and I identify with him. It's the big mouth, wrong answer all the time guy. What does Simon Peter say into that situation? Jesus, lucky for you, we're here. That's another way of saying, Jesus, you should just know that you're really fortunate to have me on your team. You know any Christians who feel that way? (laughs) So, Simon Peter says, good for you that we're here. It's really good. Because I happen to be... Well, we know he was a fisherman, right? But suddenly, Simon Peter thinks himself to be a builder. And what does he say? Go check check the story out. That's your homework, all right? He says, it's a good thing that, you're, that we're here. because 
we'll build a tabernacle. Simon Peter is the original shrine builder in the church. We're here, and look, this is a move of God. Let's build something so that we can stick around, so that we can enjoy the moment. We can be here. We can remember how, you remember how cool it was when Jesus' whole appearance changed. Jesus is smarter than that. He never buys into our simplistic thinking about church work. Jesus says, no, man, you don't get it. The work is down there. We can't stay up here because there are people down there who need life. In other words, Simon Peter needed God to tell him when to camp out and when to go. So let's stop and pull this home for just a second. Where in your personal life have you just gotten really comfortable about living in past glory. It's difficult for churches, this whole concept that I'm talking about today. Because churches have a way of buying into a mentality that just beats horses to death. You know the old saying, you beat a dead horse to death? Hello, are you there this morning? You know, act like... You heard that saying before? You know, it comes from the idea, a jockey riding a horse in a race, when he really needs the horse to dig in and run faster and get more into it, he smacks him with a whip, beating a horse to get more out of him so that he'll run faster. The problem with churches is we beat dead horses to death. A friend of mine had a pastor at one time who had this some kind of a plaque right next to his office door so that when he left every day, it would be the thing that he would see as he went out of the sanctuary of his office into the real world. And it was how to beat a dead horse to death at church. And at all these ways that churches beat dead horses to death, we try to get more life out of programs, we try to get more life out of people, and they're just dead. So we retool them. And life will come out every couple of years. And it's the same material. They just found a different way to market it for us. And we don't, hear me carefully, we don't need to hear from God anymore because we got big brother Baptist in Nashville that's going to tell us how to do it. No wonder churches are dead. No wonder our society seems to be hell-bent on being hell-bent. Is your Christian life stagnant today? Do you find yourself in a spiritual rut? You know what a rut is, right? It's a grave with both ends kicked out. It's where people go to die. Those ruts. So let's move on. I got new contacts. I still can't see the clock, so I'm just going to finish my... No, I can see, actually. So how do we determine when to stay put and when to move? That's really probably a good question for us. Let's start with the most obvious. You always have to be willing to move. That's a huge statement, actually. I start talking in these terms in church work, especially from the pulpit of churches where I serve as pastor, and some people get really nervous that the pastor's fixing to change something. We can't change that. Well, the, you know, we started doing that when Brother Jeremiah was here. And I'm not talking about David. I'm talking about Jeremiah, Jeremiah. 
we can't do that. We've always done it this way. Yeah, and you've always been dead. That's a great reason to keep it up. I like to say it this way. There are those people in church who say, I don't like change. But you know that's not it's exactly true. Um, they probably have a cell phone, which means they change from the old rotary landlines. They probably have a remote control changer for their television instead of a kid that they send up there to change it all the time. The reality is we don't like the change that we don't like. And it's important that we recognize that's the case because God is always on the move. Read that as God is changing things. He's not changing. Salvation history is on the march. The plan is what the plan is, but the plan is always relevant no matter what generation you happen to be in. But you've got to hear from God in order to get there. And some people are just not willing to hear So if you're a leader in this church, you better be willing to hear what God has to say about where we go and where we stay. Because if you miss it as a leader, how are we ever going to get it right? Here's the second part of it. We must hear God and follow what he has to say. This pushes me back to verse 8. All right, so now the whole sermon is found right here. Everything that I've had to say and what I'm going to say from here to the end has to do with this one observation in verse 8. Again, I'm intrigued by Abram. Why would God show up like he did in verse 7? And the promise there is, I'm going to give this land to you, It make or to your offspring. It makes sense that he would stay there. Why in verse 8 would he just all of a sudden haul up and move somewhere? The answer to that, I believe, is wrapped up in the single verb that we find there in the first part of verse. I know some of you going, oh, here he goes with grammar again. Let me tell you something. Words matter, especially in Scripture. Our English translation says, from there he moved. But the Hebrew is written here in a very specific way. There is a mood, a tense of this verse that is very definitive for us. It has a causative feel to it. And not just Abram moved. Yes, he did. But if we translated it very literally, it would be, and he was caused to move. You see, that's totally different from just saying, well, you know what? We've been here forever. Let's haul up and do something else. That's also the death knell of the church. It's not about just doing something. It's about doing the right thing. And the only way we get to the right thing is when God causes us to see it. And he was caused to move on. That's the only thing that makes sense about why he would leave where God showed up. But it fits, doesn't it? If God is systematically, regularly about moving salvation history forward, then we would expect him to cause us to move from time to time. We've got to listen for God's voice. And yet that seems to be so difficult for us. This is the basis. I don't know if you noticed, but our sign out there, Spencer and I get together uh, on Wednesdays. And uh, we try to get the sermon title for the coming Sunday on our sign out there. Okay, Part of that uh, is because it's. I, I think there's some value in it. But there's only value in it if the sermon titles are such that it grabs people's attention. 
And so for today, anybody notice what the sermon title today was? Are you eating worms? I thought surely I'd get some, some, at least some elementary school kids here from that, for that one. I want people driving by to see that to go, what in the world are they doing at that church? Maybe they'll want to know bad enough to stop in sometime and find Jesus here. So the title comes from another part of the book of Exodus. It has to do with this hearing from God on a systematic, regular basis. Remember as they're wandering out, they get out, they get out of Egypt, they go across the Red Sea, great move of God. I mean, after all, if God can do that, and if he can wipe out the whole Egyptian army just like that, surely God could do anything else we need him to do, right? Wrong if you're a children of Israel, one of the children of Israel. Because, they, I mean, they, it's not even hardly till the water gets hot out there, so to speak. They come to Moses, and their comment to Moses was, You're a dog, Moses! Well, that's, not, that's loosely translated from the Hebrew. Why? Because we're hungry. And you brought us out here to starve to death in the wilderness, and it was better as a slave in Egypt. Hello? Really? Do you really believe that? You brought us out here to die. We're going to starve to death. And so Moses goes to God, and you know what Moses says to God? I don't know if it's exactly there, but another place I know Moses said this. God, why don't you just kill them? Just kill them all. You know what God does, right? God steps into that situation. He says, okay, tell you what, I know you're hungry. Um, you, I'm good for this. I brought you out here. I'm going to get you where you need to go. So I know you got to eat on the way, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send quail to you every day. That's not a bad way to eat every day. But you need a biscuit with quail, right? So he sends this stuff called manna, which literally translated means, what is it? And it, in the morning, he gives them directives, go out and pick it up and get enough for the day. Don't get more than enough for today, because if you get more than you need today, uh, it won't be any good tomorrow. I'll just trust me tomorrow. If I can give it to you today, I can give it to you tomorrow. Trust me to do that. And there's some of those Baptists in that group, you know there were. And so they go out and they go, well, you know, really, if I actually, uh, I can sell this. And so they get more than they need today. And tomorrow, what happens to what they gathered today? The extra stuff has worms in it, according to Scripture. Yesterday's manna has worms in it. So now to the question, are you eating worms? Are you depending on some past experience with Christ to give you the vibrancy to live for him today? There's a reason God told them to go out every day. Well, there was one exception. They were not to do it on the Sabbath. But God told them on the day before the Sabbath, I'll give you enough for two days and it won't have worms in it. Let me tell you something. The message in that for us is incredible. Trust God to give you what you need, including his input for your situation. And just at the right moment, he'll tell you what you need to know. For you as an individual, for us as a church, we have to get this right. So let me give you very, I'm just going to run through these, some suggestions for you on how to hear from God. I don't want to send you out just feeling bad about how we've always done church. So let's do this. Here's the first one. Stay sensitive to his voice. Now, unless you're a preacher, in other words, if you really work for a living, you probably have calluses on your hands or somewhere. Those calluses 
are your body's protection against wearing holes in your skin. Now, one of the things that it does is it begins to numb your feelings there. When I first started playing the guitar, uh, a guy that was working with me said, now, your fingers are going to be a little bit sore. I, nah, you know. So I played for about an hour, which is a long time for the first day or so that you're playing the guitar. And I quit because my, I thought my fingers were going to fall off. They hurt like you can't imagine. But you know, the longer I played the guitar back in those days, the more I developed calluses on the ends of my fingers where you're holding those frets down, those strings down on the frets. And over a period of time, it didn't hurt at all anymore because I had calluses there. Let that translate into your spiritual life. So many people, Christian people, church people are walking around with calloused hearts. And we can't hear or feel the movement of God because we've got so much garbage that's built up that we just can't sense his presence. If you want to hear from him, you got to create the atmosphere. That's the third one of these. The second one is you have to intentionally listen. All of those come together. We need to hear from God. God doesn't play 20 questions with us. Just ask him. Live in such a way that you hear his voice. Even when he breathes deeply, we ought to hear that from him. In the long run, noteworthy living requires constant contact with God. So how is it with you? Bow your heads, close your eyes, if you will. We go to this time of commitment. It may very well be that you walked in here and you don't even know why you came to church. Or maybe you came and you got something you weren't necessarily expecting in here. It could be that God himself today, through his Holy Spirit, is working deep within you to do something with you and for you. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, and all of this stuff I've been talking about sounds maybe a little bit weird to you, maybe you've grown up with it, but it's never really become your own truth, uh, the place to start is to hear Jesus himself through his Spirit as he works within you even now to hear him say, I have a life for you, I have a plan in your life, and it all begins with giving yourself to him, to trust him. If that's you today, and you know that you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, then I'm going to say to you, that's where you have to start. You've got to begin that relationship. If you don't know what that means or how to do that, this is a great time. We'll stand up here in just a minute. I'd encourage you to come on down. Aaron will be down here. I'll be down here. We'll counsel. We'll talk with you, explain stuff. We're not going to try to push you into a decision. We just want to have the discussion with you. But if God's moving in you and you know that he is, don't put it off. Many of us here long since gave our hearts to Christ and we are his children. We know that we've have fire insurance enough that if we died now we'd go to heaven because of him. We know all that stuff, but our lives have been totally unrelated to him for a long time. We haven't even considered hearing from him, much less responding to what he says. And yet today he just won't leave you alone in that. Let me tell you something. I've run from the Lord many, many times. There is a much better way to live than that. 
So why don't we all stand together? And Father, as we're standing and we go into this invitation time, we ask you to do your work in our hearts. Draw us close. Help us to hear your voice. Help us to be committed to following you. We pray that you would bring those people who need you right now into the family through Jesus Christ. And it is in his name we pray. Amen.